Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Sunday School. Good to see you. We're continuing in the book of Exodus today. This is actually our last time in the book of Exodus. We will have one more lesson dealing with Exodus, but our last look in the book of Exodus as we take a look at the tabernacle system that God instituted for Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. The fact that God chose to tabernacle, or that is, dwell among the people of Israel, is incredible because of what we looked at last time. They turned right after receiving the covenant and saying they would keep it with the Lord. They instead turned to worship an idol, to worship a golden calf. But God still chooses to dwell with his people. And we're going to overview the whole system associated with that dwelling today. And we're going to examine the main elements of the tabernacle itself. And we're going to look at the sacrifices, the main sacrifices that God ordained to be given at the tabernacle. You should have received a handout that uh, goes over, that details those different sacrifices. So I'm not sure who's handing those out, but make sure you get one because that'll be useful to you, I think. Now, we have a lot of material to cover today. This is going to be a little bit of an atypical lesson, a little different from how I normally do things. It's going to be a little bit more informational, a little bit less exhortational, and I'm going to be doing a little bit more talking than normal. So just be aware of that. I've sought to streamline the presentation as much as I can so that we can actually cover all this information today. But I do need you to focus, pay attention, and stay with me. As we overview the different elements of the tabernacle, we're going to be asking three questions. We're going to keep coming back to these today. First, what was the element's practical purpose? Let's say we're looking at an altar or uh, a, a table. What, what was its purpose? Then what does it show us about God? What does it emphasize to us about God? And then finally, how does it connect to Jesus Christ? Is there a connection? What's the connection? So those are the questions we're going to be looking at today. We find the information about the tabernacle given by God to Moses in Exodus 25 to 31. So this is Moses' first day first stay on the on Mount Sinai for 40 days. This is before the golden calf incident. And we're going to be moving quickly through the text. So I encourage you to go back and read through this, this section and the section that comes after Exodus 32 later today or later this week. So you can see more of the details of what we're talking about. And you can also see some of the details of things we don't have time to talk about, such as the high priest garments, the anointing oil, and things like that. All right, well, let's pray, and then we will talk about the tabernacle. Our gracious God, we thank you, Lord, that you are all the things that the tabernacle declares, and yet we see them in an even greater way now that we have the fuller revelation of Christ. You indeed dwell among your people, and you will dwell among your people in an even greater way than we've ever known. In the new heavens, the new earth, you will be with us on the earth. Lord, we look forward to that day, and I pray, God, you'd help me to be able to explain the elements of the tabernacle well so that they can see more of your glory and understand better your scriptures that have so much to do with this tabernacle. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, please take your Bibles and open up to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, we're going to start talking about the different elements of the tabernacle. When God starts giving his directions to Moses for how the tabernacle is to be constructed, the first element of it that he gives directions for is the Ark of the Covenant. And so that's where we're going to start, too. Look at Exodus 25, verses 10 to 22. It's where we find information about the Ark. Now, I'm not actually going to read the passage just for the sake of time. I, I won't be doing that for any of the parts that we're looking at today, but this is where it's coming from in the text. I'm going to be pointing out certain details from the text and summarizing a lot of others. So Exodus 25, 10 to 22 is where we hear about this ark. Now the word for ark in Hebrew is the word aron. Remember the two words for ark, teba and aron. Teba refers to Noah's ark. Aron is a different ark. It means box, chest, or coffin. And that's what this ark is, just a box. The dimensions are about three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet tall, so rectangular box. Box is made out of acacia wood, and actually, all of the wooden elements of the tabernacle are made out of acacia wood. This wood would probably be the wood from the black acacia tree, which was common to Arabia. This tree could get quite large, but it was also known for its thorns. You see a picture there of some 
thorns next to someone's hand. That's actually from the acacia tree, gigantic thorns on the branches of this tree. And it's possible, even likely, that it was acacia thorns that were used to fashion the crown of thorns that Christ wore on Calvary. But acacia wood is good for construction. It's sturdy, it's beautiful, and it's even fragrant. All the wood elements of the tabernacle are going to be made out of acacia wood. And so is this box. And even though it's made out of wood, it is overlaid inside and out with gold, pure gold. Features gold molding, has four gold rings, and then these rings would function with two acacia wood poles that were also overlaid with gold. They'd be put through the rings so that this box could be transported. Now, if you look at verse 21 of the section we're in right now, God commands Moses to place the testimony in the ark referring to the Ten Commandments that are written with the finger of God. And this is where the ark gets its name. It's the Ark of the Covenant, the box of the covenant or the testimony. Now, the testimony wasn't the only thing in this box, at least later on. It also is filled with the jar of manna that God commanded Israel to save as a memorial, and also Aaron's flowering or budding staff. Those are also both placed in the ark, according to Hebrews 9.4. But God's law is the central element. It goes inside the box. Then notice the top of the box features this special lid that is called a mercy seat in our translation. That's kind of an interesting translation. The word for this lid literally in Hebrew is covering, or it could also be translated atonement. So it's, I think the idea behind mercy seat is the covering has two senses. It's the covering, literally the covering of this box, but also it's associated with atonement. So mercy seat is the translation we have. Now this lid of pure gold, it features on it two figures that are called cherubim. We don't know exactly what these figures looked like. The only description given of them here is that they are creatures with faces and wings. Interestingly, some of you may know, there is another place in the Bible where cherubim are more vividly described. Does anybody know where that is? That's right. Book of Ezekiel, chapter 10. And there, Ezekiel has a vision of certain creatures that have four faces, four wings, and four and human hands. Not four, necessarily, but they have all these faces, wings, and hands. And he identifies them as cherubim. Now, these are not necessarily looking like that. It's possible there may be multiple kinds of cherubim, multiple ways that they might look. But whatever these cherubim look like, Moses understood he was given the pattern by God and the people that God moved to create these elements. They were able to capture what the cherubim looked like. So we got these two cherubim. And according to verse 20, the cherubim, they are looking in a particular direction with their faces. They're looking toward one another and they're looking toward the mercy seat. And notice in verse 21, it says that God will specifically meet with Israel from above the mercy seat between the cherubim. And there God says he will speak and give commands. Now, by the way, this description or the description of God being enthroned above the cherubim is very common in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. And it is a reference to, on the one hand, the ark itself. This is where God essentially sets up his throne on the earth and he is above the cherubim. But it also reflects a heavenly reality, which we even see in different visions throughout the Bible, that God is above the cherubim, enthroned above the cherubim. So that's where that description comes from. Now, one other detail about the ark to mention, not mentioned here, but later on we learn that the ark is placed in the inner room of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. So this is the ark. Let's ask our three questions about the ark. First, what is its practical purpose? It's to provide a place for God to meet with Israel, a place for his presence to reside. But what does the ark show us about God? Just from its design and its description. I don't think we have to get too uh, mysterious about this. Some of these things are pretty straightforward. First of all, it shows us that God is present. He's chosen to dwell with his people in the ark at the tabernacle. He is a God who is very near and present. We also see that God is majestic. After all, the ark is made out of gold. It features these exalted creatures. That's because he is an exalted God. But we also see that God is holy. The ark contains God's law, which is his standard for judgment. He said, if you don't keep this, I will judge you. And the ark itself is placed in a 
separated room within the tabernacle. It's behind a veil that no one could enter except under very special circumstances. This is because God is holy and he's emphasizing his holiness even with the ark. But the ark also shows us that God is merciful. Because God does not choose to meet with Israel upon a judgment seat or merely a holy seat, but a seat or lid that is a place for propitiation. This lid of mercy also notice it literally become it comes between God's presence and God's law. It is only because of the mercy of God that anyone will be able to approach God and have God dwell with them. All of these things are connected with the ark. But how does the ark connect with Christ? And perhaps you're already thinking when we talk about these things that the ark shows us, does not Christ show this in an even greater way? He is the greater embodiment of all the things that the ark represents, especially God's presence and God's mercy. Because after all, Jesus is Emmanuel, as Isaiah 7.14 says. He is God with us, present with us in an unimaginably intimate way by taking on human flesh and living among us. And with his death and resurrection, Jesus secures for us uninhibited access into God's most intimate presence. And we even have God's spirit sent to dwell with us, giving us the mind of Christ. God still dwells with his people, but in a way that was even more intimate than the tabernacle. Tabernacle was a wonderful comfort in reality, but Christ even more so. And all of this, all these things that Christ did, it was to show God's unfathomable mercy. The righteous son, the member of the Trinity, suffering and dying for sinners, securing for us an even greater mercy seat to meet with God. You're going to see as we look at the different elements of the tabernacle and how they connect with Christ, it's not so much that Christ is different. In many ways, he's the same as what the tabernacle was expressing. After all, he's God. It's just even greater. So here we have the first element of the tabernacle, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Now let's look at the second, the table of the showbread. We see this in the same chapter, Exodus 25, verses 23 to 30, so right after where we were. Now again, I'm not going to read the passage. I just want to point out some important details to you. This table, this table is made also out of acacia wood, and about three feet by one and a half feet and two and a quarter feet. Like the ark, tables overlaid with pure gold, has a gold border, gold rim, four gold rings on its corners, so that we could have, again, acacia wood poles that are overlaid with gold, put the rings to transport this table. With this table are a number of other golden dishes, pans, jars, and bowls. And most importantly, we're told in this section that the bread of the presence goes on this table. And if you look at verse 30, when is this bread supposed to be, at the t be on the table? At all times, at all times, the bread is to be on the table. Now, King James translates the bread of the presence as showbread. This is where we get the, the, the name showbread. Uh, the word in Hebrew for this bread literally means face. But that term face can have more abstract ideas like presence or countenance or showing. So this is why we have the table of the showbread. But whose face, whose presence or showing is connected with this bread? Is this the bread of man's presence? No, surely not. This is the bread of God's presence, God's showing, God's face. We get a little bit more information about this bread in Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. Leviticus 24, 5 to 9 tells us that this bread must consist of 12 cakes, 12 cakes representing each one of the tribes. The cakes are to be continuously set on the table as a memorial, but they are to be replaced every Sabbath. The replaced bread, the old bread, is then given to Aaron and his sons to eat as a priestly portion. There we have the table of the showbread. Let's ask again our three questions about this table. What is the practical purpose of this table? Well, to provide a place for this showbread and to provide for Aaron and his sons a, a portion of bread to eat. But what does the table show us about God? Now, an ignorant observer might think that this bread was being offered to God to eat, much like food was offered to various pagan deities 
and idols in ancient times. But we're aware of other scriptures that God is spirit. He has no need of food. This bread is not a statement that God needs man's bread. But rather, what is this table saying? It's not that God needs man's bread, but what does man need? He needs God's bread and really God himself. Because after all, this is the bread of God's presence. God's presence, you could say, is itself the priest's bread and really all Israel's bread. And isn't this exactly what God says later in the Torah? Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live on bread alone, but what? Everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. So this bread offering, because it is a kind of offering, it is an expression of worship from Israel. They're saying, we not only trust you, God, to provide us with our necessary bread, but we acknowledge that you are more necessary to us than even bread. By commanding this table and its necessary bread, God was showing himself, emphasizing about himself, that he is Israel's provider. He is Israel's life, even Israel's satisfaction. And of course, being made out of gold, this table once again emphasizes the majesty of God. The table, all utensils made out of gold. But how does it connect to Jesus Christ? Is there a connection of this bread and this table? What did Jesus say himself in John 6.35? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Again, this is not different, but in many ways it's an escalation. Jesus is the greatest provision of God for his people, better than even daily sustenance. The God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, he provides his people with salvation. Or better yet, he provides them with God himself. He not only saves his people, but he sustains them every day. And we're the beneficiaries of that. We experience that. He's right to call himself the bread of life because Jesus is our sustenance and our satisfaction. He provides for our physical needs, but for our spiritual needs, he provides in the most amazing way. So this, these truths that the tabernacle is emphasizing, they are even more prominent in Jesus himself. All right, two tabernacle elements down. I, you may feel that we're moving a little bit quickly, but that's because we've got a lot to get to. So we've got two, we've got five more to go. So keep staying with me. Next part of the tabernacle that we want to look at, also in the same passage, is the golden lampstand. Look at Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40. Exodus 25, 31 to 40. And here, what do we learn about the lampstand? Well, it's entirely made out of gold. Not wood and gold, but just gold. One piece. And it's made to resemble a certain plant. An almond tree. I have a picture of an almond tree there. This lampstand is to have six branches, three on each side. Each branch is to have three cups shaped like almond blossoms with corresponding bulbs and flowers. The stand itself is to have four cups with bulbs and flowers. Lots of cups, bulbs, and flowers on this tree. And notice... Seven lamps, according to verse 37. Seven lamps on this tree. And the lampstand has corresponding snuffers and trays, and these are also to be made out of gold. Everything is made out of one talent of gold. How much is a talent? There's a little bit of debate about that, but likely it was about 75 pounds. So this lamp and all its implements, it covers a fair amount, it comes from a fair amount of gold. By the way, looking at this picture, you might be thinking of a certain word that Jews use for a special lamp that they have. Does anybody know the term for a special Jewish lamp often shown in Hanukkah? Menorah, that's right. And that's because that word is the word for lampstand used here. The Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. That's what this is, and that's where the menorah comes from. If we jump ahead for a moment and Exodus 27, verses 20 to 21. Exodus 27, 20 to 21 gives a little bit more direction regarding this menorah. Actually, go ahead and turn there. Exodus 27, 20 to 21. We're told in these verses that as fuel for these seven lamps, 
the people of Israel are to provide olive oil. And this lamp is going to need this oil because God commands for these lamps to be burning continually, he says. But we do need to know, what exactly does God mean by continually? Does he mean it should never go out? Or does it mean it should just be lit during certain recurring periods? Notice verse 21 in Exodus 27. It says, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamp in order from evening to morning. Or in other words, during what period of time? That would be the time of darkness. Evening, you're going right into the night. And then morning, the night ends. They are to keep the lamp from evening to morning. So God has designed that these lamps not to be constantly burning, but they are to be lit every evening and then put out every morning. I guess that's one of the reasons for the snuffers. It may be surprising to you. It was surprising to me when I first saw that. But actually, a parallel passage or parallel description appears in 2 Chronicles 13, verses 10 to 11. 2 Chronicles 13, 10 to 11, likewise indicates that these, these lamps burned at night only. But why leave the lamps burning at night if there's no activity in the tabernacle at that time? In everything that the priests are doing at the tabernacle, it's not happening at night. So why have the lamp lit? God must be saying something. So let's go to our three questions now. What is the practical purpose of this golden lampstand? Well, provide light, especially at night in the darkness. What is God saying about himself in this lampstand and in this light? You may notice a certain parallel between this lampstand and the oil that it burns, the light that it gives, and something else in Israel. Something else that burned and provided light, but not during the day, only at night. What parallel do we have to this lampstand? The pillar of fire, exactly. God's own presence, this glory cloud, it didn't burn during the day. It was just a cloud, but at night it burned and provided light. And this was important because it was going to be what led, what guided Israel through the wilderness, they were to follow the pillar of fire. And it was also a, a reminder of God's presence. And certainly we know that God himself is associated with light, light throughout the scriptures, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the scriptures. And just to give you a few other verse references to keep in your mind, 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine says, For you are my lamp, O Yahweh, and Yahweh illumines my darkness. Psalm 90, verse 8, Psalm of Moses. He says, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. And then Zechariah, Zechariah verse, chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, Zechariah sees an interesting vision that features a golden lampstand, very similar to the one described here. And the lamps of that lampstand are identified by God in that passage as, quote, the eyes of Yahweh, which range to and fro throughout the earth. So what is God saying about himself, emphasizing about himself with this lampstand? Well, some things we've already seen. God is present. The light of his presence is showing continually, both in the burning pillar, but also in this lamp. I think that's really also comforting at night, right? Because night, you, you can't stay awake. You can't manage things. It's also dark all around you, but God's light is still burning. In a literal way, God is burning the midnight oil. He's staying up for his people. He's at work for his people. He's there. He's present. You see, God is glorious. He's beautiful, like this gold, dazzling, burning candelabra. But God is also the illuminator. He is illuminating as a compassionate guide, but also as a holy judge. If you trust in Yahweh, he will show you the way, even in darkness. He will guide you. But if you sin, if you turn away from Yahweh, his light will lay bare the darkness of your heart. So how does the golden lampstand connect to Jesus Christ? Again, we can go straight to one of the I am statements, can't we? John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the fullest embodiment 
of God's guiding light and God's light of judgment. If you desire rescue and guidance, if you want to know how to get to heaven, how to be with God, well, Jesus is the light. He is the lampstand, a greater lampstand, and he will illumine the path of life for you. He is both the light and the path. But if you walk in hypocrisy, if you walk in sin, well, remember John's vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13 or Revelation 114, John notes his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. We have to face the fact that Jesus' burning gaze will find out all sin. And God has given him judgment. You will not escape his judgment if you refuse to repent. All right, three elements of the tabernacle accounted for. There's one more holy object that goes inside the tabernacle, though it doesn't appear until Exodus 30. There are reasons for that. There's a reason why God doesn't talk about it right now. But for our purposes, we want to talk about it now. So actually, go to Exodus 30. Let's take a look at the fourth holy object inside the tabernacle, altar of incense. Exodus 30, verses 1 to 10. All right, so what do we hear about this altar? Again, made out of acacia wood, but overlaid with gold. About one and a half feet square and three feet high. It's not too big. It has horns at each corner. It also has a gold molding and two golden rings on its two sides for holding. We've seen acacia wood poles covered with gold so that this thing can be transported. All of this is transportable. Where does this altar go? According to Exodus 30, verse 6, it goes inside the holy place, so that's the outer room inside the tabernacle, in front of the veil. The veil divides the holy of holies from the holy place. So this altar goes right near the place of God's intimate presence, but not inside it. Now this altar, we're told, is for burning incense. And when? When is this to be burned? Look at verse 8 here. It says, every morning, every evening at twilight. So at the same time the priest is managing the lampstand, he is to burn incense. Now this is a repeating, a perpetual act. There always needs to be incense burning before Yahweh. God gives a warning about this incense in verse 9 of our chapter. He says, no strange incense will be acceptable for this altar, nor shall any other kind of offering be offered on this altar. You only can burn the incense that God specifically commanded on this altar. And we hear about what this incense is if we look further down the chapter in verses 34 to 38. I won't go through the ingredients, but the combination of ingredients certainly would have produced a strong and pleasant smell was burned. But God, even there, warns that no lay person in Israel was to create this same combination of incense or burn it. And if they did, they were to be cut off from the people, meaning death. So here's the altar of incense. Let's ask our three questions. What's the purpose of this altar? Well, for burning, providing a pleasant aroma and a cloud of smoke. But what does it say about God? What does the incense altar say about God? Certainly the beauty of the altar and the pleasant preciousness of the incense would point to God's glory. God's majesty. So the set-apart nature of the altar and its incense, it points to God's holiness. He is set apart. But what about the incense itself? Why incense? Well, surely this offering of incense is not like the incense that the pagans would offer to their gods. Many ancient religions, and even modern religions, they use incense as an offering to various gods and spirits, as if the gods themselves would enjoy the smell of this substance. But the true God is spirit. It does not crave or need the smell of incense. So why incense then? Is it representative of something? Well, some point when trying to think about what incense would represent to the book of Revelation, where we do see in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 that incense is used in that vision as or it's identified as the prayers of the saints. It says incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4, an angel is offering incense to God along with the prayers of the saints, it says. So does incense equal the prayers of the saints? Is God saying your incense to me is like, or your prayers to me are like incense? Well, not necessarily. 
got to face the fact that sometimes somebody might be using a certain metaphor in one section of scripture in a different way than it's used in other sections. So John may be using symbol, the symbol of incense in a unique way in Revelation. And even those two passages I mentioned, Revelation 5 and Revelation 8, they don't use incense exactly the same. And one, it is the prayers of the saints, and another, it's with the prayers of the saints. In fact, from what else we see in the Old Testament, I would argue that the incense of the tabernacle actually points to something else, not prayer exactly. Because notice again that the incense prescribed in Exodus 30, it provides a pleasant aroma. And God commands for it to be burning every day. Where else in God's Old Testament law do we have something produce a soothing aroma to God that is required from Israel every day? Something else is burned, create a soothing aroma. What is called a soothing aroma? That would be the animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices are also said to produce a soothing aroma when they are burned before God. Furthermore, God's commands regarding the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, verses 11 to 14. Now, the Day of Atonement was a special uh, event of cleansing for all of Israel and the priests. It was the one time each year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, but he had to go there a special way. We're told in Leviticus 16, 11 to 14, that when the priest goes through the veil into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the ark's cover, that was part of what the priest needed to do on that day, he had to come in with incense. And listen to why. Leviticus 16, 13 says specifically, He shall put incense on the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, Otherwise, he will die. Wow. So this incense is serving kind of like a shield to protect the priest from God's holy judgment when the priest goes in to the Holy of Holies, when he goes before the ark. He needs this covering to protect him from God's holiness. Kind of like the animal sacrifices, right? It, those are also about covering in order to protect the people of God, from the holiness and wrath of God. So when asking what is God showing about himself through the burning incense, I would argue that it's really emphasizing the holiness of God. Because all Israelites, including the priests, they're shown that they need a merciful covering from God, something to prevent God's holy wrath from breaking out against them. And it's not the incense itself or even the burnt offerings that soothe God's nostrils and prevent his wrath because God sometimes rejects these offerings. What was actually or what actually would make incense or an animal offering sweet in the metaphorical smell of God? The incense or the offering would have to be offered in what? Certainly in faith, right? Isn't that what made Abel's sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God? We're told in Hebrews, because he offered it in faith. He believed God. And Abel's faith, just like the faith of all people, is demonstrated through obedience and through prayer and through thanksgiving. I think that's part of the reason why incense becomes associated with prayer in other places, because it is an act of faith. So the altar of incense, it reminds us that God is holy and that we need a merciful covering from God for our sin. But this covering, like with the prescription for the incense in the altar here, it can only come in God's way. And what's interesting is that when it comes to incense, the Old Testament is replete with examples of people who are using incense the wrong way with God's altar. You got people offering the wrong kind of incense got people offering incense who aren't supposed to, or people offering incense in the wrong places or to the wrong God. And all of this is rejected by God. It is abominable to God, and it brings his judgment. Only God's priest could offer the incense, and he had to offer the right incense at the right time, at the right place, to the right God, in order for a covering to be provided. So how does the altar of incense connect to Jesus Christ? 
Well, is not the Son also made a pleasing aroma to the Father? Because the altar of incense, like the altar of burnt offering, it is all about our need as God's people for covering. Jesus, as the perfect high priest, he provided a once-for-all sacrifice that permanently gives a soothing aroma before the Father. And that's what Ephesians 5.2 says directly. The aroma of Jesus' righteous life and his wrath-bearing death on behalf of sinners, it forever covers those who believe in him and have Jesus as their high priest. The book of Hebrews also tells us that Jesus continually intercedes for his own before the Father, just like the Old Testament incense was constantly burning before the Father. But Jesus is better, better than incense in some earthly temple. So these are the four elements that appear inside the tabernacle. But now let's actually back up and talk about the outside of the tabernacle. Look at Exodus chapter 26. Exodus 26, 1 to 37 is where we hear about the building itself. Now there are a lot of details here. Things about boards and clasps. I'm just going to give you the Reader's Digest version of the outside of the tabernacle. Tabernacle building. It was constructed as a transportable sanctuary tent. And it was covered by several layers of material that were made out of linked large curtains. The first layer, the innermost layer, is composed of curtains made from blue, purple, scarlet material and fine twisted linen. On these curtains, on the in, this inner layer of the tabernacle, are to be cherubim, same celestial creatures mentioned with the ark. Second layer of covering for the tabernacle is, and laid on top of the first, is composed of goat's hair. These goat hair curtains were slightly larger than the first layer, and part of the second layer would hang over the front and the back of the tabernacle, and it completely covered and overlapped the first layer. Third layer of covering was ram skins dyed red, or perhaps tanned ram skins, as the ESV translates it. And then finally, the fourth layer, we have what the New American Standard calls porpoise skins, verse 14. Anybody know what a porpoise is? It's a kind of aquatic mammal, like a killer whale. So is God saying Israel needs to make a layer of the tabernacle out of whale skins? Possibly, though the word is a little enigmatic. It can be translated various ways. If you look at the ESV, the fourth layer is translated as goat skins. NIV says durable leather. King James Version says badger skins. We're not exactly sure what the fourth layer was. But whatever it was, it was apparently dark and strong. Now, all these layers of cloth, hair, skin, they're held up on the inside by acacia wood boards covered in gold and passing through certain gold rings to give the tent its structure. What would the tabernacle have looked like on the inside? You see a couple of artist depictions there on the screen. A little bit of variance in interpretation. Some see these golden boards forming a kind of wall, a golden wall inside the tabernacle. And so you really couldn't see the curtain except on the ceiling. On the ceiling, you would see that beautiful red, purple, blue, and the cherubim. Others see the boards a little bit more spaced apart, forming like a golden cage on the inside of the tabernacle. And you can see the curtain from within the spaces of that cage, or you can see the, the first layer. Now we'll talk about the entrance of the tabernacle in just a moment, but notice that those on the outside of the tabernacle could not see the inner layer. They would not see that first layer of curtains that has the cherubim depicted on it. You'd have to go inside the tabernacle to see that layer. Those on the outside, they'd probably mostly only see the, the fourth layer of covering, that dark porpoise skin or whatever it was. Now, in terms of the shape of the tabernacle, most understand the tabernacle to be essentially a box, slightly fanned out sides to account for tent pegs that would keep the covering of the box in place. Now, the tabernacle had certain dividers, and you can see these reflected in the pictures there. There was a veil dividing the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle, and the rest of the tabernacle is called the holy place. And then there was a screen that divided the holy place from the outside. The screen served like an entrance to the tabernacle. Now, the veil was made just like the inner set of curtains. It was made of the same material. It also featured the cherubim. 
And the screen was also like the inner set of curtains, but it did not feature any cherubim. So made out of the purple, the red, and the, the blue thread, but no cherubim. The layout of the tabernacle was as follows. And again, you can see this reflected in the artist depictions. The ark goes inside the Holy of Holies, which is essentially a cube. That room is same dimensions on every side. While the table of the showbread, it went on the north side of the holy place, opposite the lampstand, which was on the south side. The tabernacle was always set up in the same directions of the compass. Entrance was on the east side, holy of holies on the west side, showbread on the north, lampstand on the south. And remember, the altar of incense is placed right in front of the veil in the holy place, right outside the holy of holies. Now, from what we know from other scriptures, how often did somebody pass through the screen, the front entrance, to go into the holy place of the tabernacle? Careful, I'm asking about the uh, tabernacle itself, the screen in the front. So not once a year here, but every day. Every day there's somebody going into the tabernacle to manage the lampstands, take care of other things on the inside. But, Mark, what you were saying is my second question. How often did somebody pass through the veil to go into the Holy of Holies? That was once a year. A priest enters with the blood on the Day of Atonement. So most of the time, nobody's going into the Holy of Holies. That's the place where God's presence is directly dwelling, but nobody's going in there. Now before we return to our questions, our three questions about the outside of the tabernacle, let's also talk about the outer court of the tabernacle. And this we see in Exodus 27, verses 9 to 19. The outer court of the tabernacle consisted of a series of wooden pillars and linen hangings, walling in a courtyard area of about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide and about seven and a half feet tall. The court featured a cloth screen on the eastern side, which served as the one entrance into the tabernacle area. So one entrance into the tabernacle, one entrance into the tabernacle court. This screen for the entrance into the tabernacle court is also made of the blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine twisted linen, but again, no cherubim. Certain important objects are placed in the outer court. We have the bronze altar, which we'll talk about in a moment, the bronze laver, or kind of like a big wash basin, and that's positioned between the altar and the tabernacle itself. So kind of everything in a line here. You got the tabernacle, the laver, and then the altar, the bronze altar. Now, who's allowed in the outer court? Well, certainly the priests and Levites would be, but also ceremonially clean Israelite worshipers. Now, don't miss this fact. Other people can go into the outer court. Laymen, they cannot go into the tabernacle itself, but they are welcome into the tabernacle court to worship and to present offerings. And by the way, no laymen pitched their tents near the tabernacle. The Levites were instructed to surround the tabernacle with their tents to serve as a kind of guarding buffer zone. So that's the outer court. Looking at both the tabernacle and its court, let's come back to our three questions. What's the practical purpose of the building? Or we'll just start with the tabernacle building itself. Well, it's to provide a sturdy, transportable, yet separate place for God's presence and for God's holy objects and for God's ordained mediators to carry out priestly ministry on behalf of the people. As for the court, the court serves like a buffer zone between God's holy tabernacle and the rest of Israel, also serves as a zone of worship for the Israelites and a transfer point for Israelite offerings. So Israelites could come this close to God's presence in order to offer sacrifices and worship, but no further. Only God's chosen priests could go further as mediators and intercessors. So what does this arrangement, this building and its arrangement, show us about God? Well, again, we're seeing some of the same themes. Again, he is majestic. This blue, purple, red thread, these colors, these are associated with majesty, royalty. These are glorious colors. It would have been hard to, harder to obtain at that time. And then we have the gold and the decorative cherubim. And notice as you get closer to God's presence, you see more and more beauty. On the outside, we just have these linen curtains. And then when you actually get up to the tabernacle, you can see that entrance veil or screen, but no cherubim. And then when you go inside, oh, there are the cherubim. There's the gold. And there are the holy implements. And of course, in the Holy of Holies is something even more glorious. 
We see again that God is present. God is with his people. He's chosen to manifest his presence in this particular glorious building. We see, though, that God is still holy. He dwells in Israel's midst, but he must remain separate even then. Those who come near to him must do so in a careful way, according to God's rules, lest they be judged. And along with this, then, we see that man needs a God-ordained mediator. Because even though God is with his people, his presence is not directly accessible to all. Israelites would have to trust in the mediators ordained for them by God, the priests from the line of Aaron, to do that which was necessary on their behalves before God. So how does this description and arrangement connect with Jesus Christ? Well, again, Christ is the greater manifestation of God's presence, but not behind screens and veils, but living among us in our own flesh. And more significantly, Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, he secures for us direct, continual access into God's most holy place. Because remember, what happened when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross? What strange thing happened? The curtain, the veil of the temple at that time, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Fully cleansed by Christ's work, we not only get to experience intimate fellowship with God now, because that's what, that's what the curtain being torn open would emphasize, wouldn't it? The way to the Holy of Holies is open. We experience that now, but we also have the surest and most certain hope of dwelling in God's great and holy presence forever. Hebrews 6, 19-20 even goes so far to say, We have an anchor for the soul that enters within the veil into the Holy of Holies, where Christ has already entered for us as a high priest. Christ made the way for us. He took an anchor for us and he put it into the Holy of Holies of God. And he says, this is not going to be removed. Hebrews says, that is our hope. That is our certain hope in being with God forever. Consider the contrast. There was no entering into the holy place before the Holy of Holies except by strict limitations and by sacrifice. But Christ's once and for all sacrifice was so great that he forever carried his people inside the veil. And that's you if you belong to Christ this morning. We no longer have to remain even at a small distance with God because of his holiness and our uncleanness, because Christ has made us acceptable to God by Christ's own righteousness and because of his substitutionary death. Really, God always had intended, God always purposed to provide a way for man to have restored access and fellowship with God. The Mosaic Tabernacle is a picture of that. You see, Wow, we have access. I'm sure they were just amazed. Look at the access we have to God. God was making a way, but Christ Christ accomplished something much greater than an earthly tabernacle could accomplish. Because Christ tabernacled among us and brought us to God totally. So now we've seen six elements of the tabernacle. Four objects inside and then the tabernacle itself and its court. Now I want to look at one more with you. Let's look at the bronze altar. Find the description of the bronze altar in Exodus 27, verses 1 to 8. Now this altar, like the altar of incense, is made out of acacia wood, but this time overlaid with bronze, not gold. Things on the outside, they're not quite as glorious in their material. We've got bronze here. Bronze is good, sturdy, not as shiny as gold. This is a big altar. It's about seven and a half feet long, seven feet, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. It has horns on its four corners. It comes with utensils, got pans for removing ashes, shovels, basins, forks, fire pans, all to be made out of bronze. It features a ledge, has a grating network on the altar, reaches halfway up the altar's height, has four rings on its corners, through which, you guessed it, acacia wood poles overlaid with bronze would be inserted so that this could be transported. And the altar is hollow on the inside, which is a good thing, because otherwise that'd be way too heavy to start moving around. Now, what exactly did this altar look like? You see, I have a number of pictures before you because a lot of different interpretations, depending on how high the, the internal grading was that the, alt, that the offerings be placed on, what was the setup 
Was there a ramp, an earthwork ramp that went up to the altar? What exactly did that look like? We have some different ideas, but it's hard to say specifically. Was this the only altar on which Israelites could offer sacrifices? Surprisingly, the answer is no. God did permit sacrifices to be offered on other altars as long as they conform to certain stipulations given in Exodus 20. He says, when you make an altar, you need to make it this way. Don't use any tools on the altar. On the altar. And sometimes Israel did sacrifice on such altars. Nevertheless, the bronze altar was to be the main altar for Israel. And no altar was permitted for the people to use without God's priest administering the sacrifice. And this was a rule that was violated many times by the people of Israel. If not a priest or not a prophet was using the altar, it was an offense to God. And caused the sacrifice, whatever sacrifice it was, to be rejected and often triggered God's judgment. Now, what kind of offerings would be made on the altar? Here's where that handout comes in. Pull out that handout, please. We could do a whole Sunday school lesson on just the offering. I would love to do that, but of course, we don't have time today. So what I've given to you instead is a little cheat sheet on the different kinds of sacrifices that God called Israel to make to him. Now, there were other offerings than these five, but these five were the main ones. There was also offerings for some other things like the Day of Atonement. But the five main ones were the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, sin offering, and the guilt offering. I urge you to check out the details of this offering. Maybe after class, you can read through the whole chart. But I do want you to notice a few things now as you glance down at this chart. Notice, first of all, that the animal offerings all begin the same way. That is, the worshiper brings the animal to the door of the tabernacle. So they go inside the outer court. They go right up to the door of the tabernacle. The worshiper lays his hand on the head of the animal, symbolically identifying himself with the animal. And in the case of sin offerings, transferring, symbolically transferring his sins to the animal. Then, and note this because we often miss this, the worshiper himself kills the animal. The worshiper himself takes the knife and slits the throat of the animal. And then the priest takes care of the offering from there. Now, why is that detail significant? Because people are seeing the cost of their offering, the cost of the sacrifice before God, the death of an innocent and blameless animal. It would have gotten a little picture of the bloodiness of sacrifice that we often miss today. So notice that. Notice also that every animal offering given to God had to be of clean animals without defect. Though not all of them had to be male. Some female offerings were prescribed. Third, notice that the differing, different offerings have different purposes generally. The burnt offering is all about atonement, general atonement covering. Grain offering, its purpose is not directly stated, but appears to be associated with dedication and trust in God's provision just kind of like the, the table of the showbread. Peace offering is associated with fellowship, with thankfulness, and with vow keeping. It was also the only offering in which the worshiper himself was allowed to eat some of the meat. So it's kind of like you're having a meal with God. The sin and the guilt offerings, they have the same kind of association. They're about purification for specific unintentional sin and uncleanness. By the way, does anyone know what kind of offering could be given for intentional and defiant sin? Actually, none. It's kind of surprising, but the Old Testament, when it refers to certain heinous, high-handed sins, Numbers 15 to 30, Numbers 15, 30 to 31 says there is no offering that can be made for such a person. That person is to be completely cut off. Which is kind of interesting, especially because in certain instances in the Old Testament, God spared people who committed such flagrant sins, King David being one prominent example. Fourth thing to notice, though part of the sin offering is burned on the bronze altar, when the priest or the congregation sins, where is most of the animal burned? Part of it's burned on the altar, but when the priest or the congregation sins, most of the animal is burned outside the camp in a clean place. So we have the bronze altar. We have the sacrifices. Let's come back to our three questions. What's the practical purpose of this bronze altar? 
provide an acceptable place for Israel to offer sacrifices to God. But what does it show us or emphasize to us about God, both the altar and its sacrifices? Well, it shows us that God is majestic. He deserves the best, your best animals. But also God is holy. Man needs a continual covering, which these animal sacrifices would provide, but they have to be perfect, blameless sacrifices without defect. But we also see God is merciful. God has provided a way for man's sins to be covered and for fellowship between God and his people to continue. Don't miss this. This was an amazing grace to the people of Israel. They know they're imperfect. They know that they're sinful. Yet God has provided a way so that they can have their sins covered and that they can have fellowship, ongoing fellowship with God. They must have been just astounded by that. How is it that God was so gracious to give us these sacrifices? This was a wonderful mercy of God. And yet, there's something greater. Because how do these offerings connect to Christ? As we've already seen a little bit with the altar of incense. Christ is the perfect priest, priest who also offers the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, sacrifice of himself. And he present, presents that offering once and for all, not continually as the Old Testament priest needed to do, but once and for all, forever securing justification for his people and making them acceptable to God. Really, Christ is the perfect version of every Old Testament offering. He provides the perfect once-for-all atonement as burnt offering. He provides perfect provision. He is the perfect provision. Like God shows with the grain offering. He is our peace. He is the agent of reconciliation as a peace offering. And he was also taken outside the camp and offered once-for-all as a sin offering and a guilt offering to cleanse his people from all their sins. Really? Christ is the reason that God allowed animals to have any covering effect in the first place. Because truly, there's nothing righteous, effective about burning an animal free of defect. And Hebrews 10, 1 to 10 really emphasizes this. It says there's nothing about a bull or a goat shedding its blood that covers your sins. Nothing in that itself. But God allowed that to serve as a covering because it suited God as a picture of the greater sacrifice that God would bring. God permitted these temporary animal sacrifices to work atonement because it served as the picture of what was to come. It's nothing in the animal itself, but as the picture, God, God uh, ordained it and allowed it. Now, we could talk a lot more about sacrifices, the altar, and really all the tabernacle elements, but all the time we have for today. Like I said at the beginning, I urge you to go back and read through Exodus 25 to 31, and even Exodus 33 to 40, get a fuller picture of the tabernacle. It's really encouraging details there about how the people of Israel freely offered for the tabernacle, how they had to be restrained from offering because they were giving so much, and it was really God who was moving them to do so. But God gives Moses and the people of Israel the instructions for the tabernacle, and they make it. They construct it just as God commanded, and then at the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, the glory cloud of Yahweh descends upon the tabernacle. So at the end of this book, this section of the Torah, the holy God of the universe is literally dwelling with an imperfect people of former slaves rescued from Egypt. This is amazing. These people now have God's covenant, God's law. They now have the tabernacle. So now it's time to take them to their land. God promised he would give them the land, but... Will the people keep covenant with Yahweh so that he can give them the land? We'll find out when we continue the account. And we'll do that very soon. But next week is review day in the Sunday school classes. And that means for the adult Sunday school class, we're going to return to a presentation we started about 10 weeks ago on the patterns of evidence exodus. In that DVD, we've already seen so far that there is archaeological evidence. There is evidence even outside the Bible, the Bible itself, the, the best evidence, outside the Bible for Joseph and the Israelites living in Egypt. But is there evidence of an exodus? Is there evidence of the things that happened with Moses? A lot of people say there isn't. We're going to take a look by listening to that presentation and talking about it next time. So hope you'll be back for that. You have specific questions or comments about this uh, large amount of information you received today about the tabernacle, 
well, please email me. But we're out of time for today, so let me close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the tabernacle. It showed wonderful things about yourself. It was a merciful provision for Israel. But God, we are so much more thankful for Jesus Christ. Lord, he who dwelled among us, who tabernacled among us, you, God, Jesus Christ, you took on our flesh. You have it permanently. And you secured for us permanent access, the most intimate access, the most intimate fellowship with you forever. We thank you for that, God, because we are sinful people. We don't deserve it. We deserve to be far away from you, destroyed by you. And yet you had such mercy on us. Lord, we thank you and we pray, God, that we would live lives worthy of the wonderful salvation inheritance that we have received. In Jesus' name, amen.